Greetings, fellow travelers, vagrants, explorers, and wildlanders. Welcome to Episode 8 of the Retro Wildlands. My name is Nomad, and this is my gaming podcast where I like to share my thoughts and experiences with a retro game I used to play back when I was younger, or maybe a modern game I've played recently. Whether this is your eighth episode or your very first, I want to extend a huge thank you for taking the time to give the show a listen. I'm having a blast talking about games that really mean something to me as I've grown up, and talking about the games I missed now that I'm just getting to them in my old age. Prepare to be entertained, and be prepared for some nostalgia. If you get neither from this show, I'm hoping maybe the soothing sound of my voice just helps kill an hour or so of your day. Whatever the case may be, I am certainly glad that you're here. On today's episode, we're going to be talking about another game I missed out on in my youth that I've finally gotten around to playing. And now that I've played it, I'm a little mad at myself that it's taken me this long to get to it. I'm talking about Metroid Zero Mission for the Game Boy Advance. It's a remake of the original Metroid for the Nintendo Entertainment System, and while I argue Metroid isn't nearly as popular as IPs such as Super Mario or The Legend of Zelda, the Metroid series is a solid staple in the Nintendo lineup. I used to know a little bit about Super Metroid when I was younger, but that was a long time ago. Other than some bits about Samus, the main character of the series, I know fuck all about Metroid or any of its story. But I'd argue any casual gamer has at least heard of Metroid at worst, or understands its impact on gaming today at best. The framework of the old-school Metroid games can be seen in plenty of modern titles today. When I was younger, I was captivated by the happy-go-lucky charm of the Mario games and the fantasy-driven adventures of Link. Metroid always seemed just a little bit more adult, a little bit more mature at a glance. It was a game where you played as an intergalactic bounty hunter and you were sent to a planet to wipe out these alien creatures called Metroids. Like I mentioned, I knew of Super Metroid for the Super Nintendo and was lucky enough to get a hold of a player's guide for it, which we'll touch on a little bit later in the main part of the episode, but I was never lucky enough to actually get my hands on the game itself. I only ever asked for it for one birthday, then it faded away from my memory as I got older. I do remember hearing that Metroid on the original Nintendo Entertainment System was a pretty punishing experience and not something I think a kid would enjoy. For these reasons, I was right to avoid Metroid. It wasn't happy-go-lucky, and it wasn't a whimsical fantasy. It was a dark, isolating, punishing experience, even on the NES way back when. But it wasn't all doom and gloom. Where Metroid excelled was with its exploration elements and its item-gated progression system. We'll dive more into this in the actual episode, but Metroid was a game that put you in a sort of open yet closed world. You're free to explore in any way you want, but the obstacles in your way weren't just the enemies you had to fight. You may come across a door that will only open if you have a specific weapon to blast it open, or you might come across a ledge that's too high to grab unless you have the right item to increase your jump height. The draw of the gameplay is that you start out weak and have no tools in your toolkit. Soon, you obtain more items and your abilities expand and allow you to explore more of the game world. Many games today still borrow this formula. Some games have tweaked it a little bit and others have arguably improved upon it. But the best way I can describe the Metroid formula is it's a lot like my mom's chicken noodle soup recipe. It was fantastic as is, but there's things you can do to potentially make it better. Now for me, I felt like mom never put enough actual chicken in her chicken noodle soup. I felt like it could use just a little bit more of that. 
Mom's recipe also called for too many carrots, I thought. And Little Nomad did not like carrots. The point of all this is, you can tweak the main recipe and get just as much, if not more, enjoyment than you would originally, and that's exactly what game developers over the years have done with the Metroid Blueprint. Now we'll get into all that in good time, but right now we have some housekeeping items and a look behind the curtains here at the Wildlands. I'm hoping you guys feel this way, but I really appreciate when other content creators give a glimpse into the inner workings of what's happening outside the show, so I'll keep that tradition going here. If you are not at all interested in any of this and just want to get right to the Metroid Zero Mission part of the podcast, just skip ahead about five to seven-ish minutes. Okay, let's power through. First up, social media plugs. If you want to interact with the show or shoot me a message, you can reach out to me on Facebook by following our Retro Wildlands page, or you can join up with me over on Twitter or Instagram. We can be found over there, at Retro Wildlands. It's been kind of hard working a social media schedule into my day-to-day, but I normally just post pictures or videos having to do with gaming or other things I'm doing with the podcast. Every now and then, there'll be a photo or two of my dogs for good measure so please feel free to toss us a follow. If you follow me, I'll follow you back, and the next time you nail that perfect photo or just want to show the world how awesome your Dunkin' Donuts looks, I'll be the first one in line to toss you a like. Now, if you post a dog photo, I'll find a way to like it twice. Last week, I had a bit of a misstep when it came to uploading an episode on time, but I'm committed to not let that happen again. Moving forward, I have a pretty good feel for what's coming up. I still have some listener-suggested games to work through, and I'm making decent progress. Since going back to check out Silent Hill for the original PlayStation, I keep looking back at some of the other PlayStation titles that I'm really excited to talk about. I'm trying to space out what games I talk about on the show so I'm not talking about just one console for weeks at a time, but games on the original PlayStation are ones that excite me the most. Resident Evil 2 and Resident Evil 3 are really high up on that list. Dino Crisis, which is pretty much old-school Resident Evil but with dinosaurs, was a game that I played a ton as well. I never did play Dino Crisis 2, and I'm eager to give that one a go. I've heard mixed things, but it looks like a good time, and I'll try it eventually. The original Tomb Raider is high up on the list, too. It was one of the other major games that I played alongside my stepdad growing up, and while the Tomb Raider series has seen many entries in the franchise and a pretty good reboot in my opinion, It was the OG that has the most childhood memories for me. Much like when we conquered Resident Evil and Silent Hill, we conquered Tomb Raider as a team, and it was awesome. All of these games have been on my mind lately, and I was reminded how awesome Twisted Metal was too, by the way. I don't have a ton of memories attached to that one, but I played it a bunch back in the day, and I'm eager to see if it holds up at all today. All of that to say... We have some pretty good stuff coming up, so if you haven't, consider throwing us a follow on your podcasting platform of choice. Download numbers slowly creep up little by little with each passing week, so a huge thank you to those that have taken the time to give this little train wreck a chance. It's not a huge number in the grand scheme of things, really, but we're close to 100 downloads across all episodes at the time I recorded this. I'm honestly floored that we have that many. I had zero expectations making this podcast. I just wanted to try something different and see about learning a new skill. Being able to talk about video games has been the icing on the cake. But something else to make clear though, this isn't just my show. This is our show now, and that is pretty fucking cool to me. 
All right, and with that, I think that's enough of the plugs. It's story time. Let's settle in by the fire and talk a little bit about Metroid Zero Mission for the Game Boy Advance. Released on February 9th, 2004, Zero Mission was a remake of the original Metroid on the NES, sporting improved graphics, additional gameplay features, an updated soundtrack, and additional content, all in one little cartridge. According to all the internet articles I've read, and all the dark seedy Reddit threads I've visited, it's pretty universally agreed upon that Zero Mission is the definitive way to play the original Metroid, and it's where you want to start your Metroid franchise journey. The game follows Samus Aran. Aran? Aran. Going with Aran. Samus Aran, a bounty hunter who's been given the mission of infiltrating planet Zebs. Zebs? We're gonna go with Zebs. Alright. Space pirates have set up shop and are working to breed Metroids, a floating organic life form that can drain the life out of other organisms by attaching themselves to them. The space pirates want to breed them and use them as biological weapons, but the Federation police are not going to tolerate that bullshit. They couldn't defeat the pirates, so they're resorting to hiring Samus, who is considered one of the best bounty hunters in the galaxy. All alone in an alien world with no backup, Samus must navigate the planet, exterminate all Metroids, and destroy the mechanical life form known as Mother Brain. So jump into your power suit, Stock up on some super missiles and test out your screw attack. There's no time to waste and our mission is critical. These Metroids aren't going to kill themselves and we have a long road ahead of us. something special about the Metroid franchise growing up. When I was deep into my Super Nintendo days, Super Metroid came up a bunch of times. I never owned it, but I read a ton about it. One place I read up on it was a pretty peculiar one. I don't remember how I got my hands on it, but I came into possession of the Super Metroid Nintendo Player's Guide published by Nintendo. Does anyone remember that? It was basically a strategy guide that had level maps, item descriptions, enemy strategies, and a boatload of artwork. I read it over and over again, but I was never able to get my hands on the actual game. I must have been around, let me think, 10 or 11 years old around this time. It wasn't until I was doing research on the Metroid series for this podcast that I come across a photo of that guide, and all the memories just flooded back. I mean, good God, man, wow. Has, has anyone ever had that experience? You've forgotten about something that you enjoyed while you were younger, or something that you experienced, then you were just reminded of it, and all those memories just come flooding back? Yeah, nostalgia. I'm just glad nostalgia is a drug that's free of charge and not illegal to consume. <laughs> but anyway, back to the guide. I never played Super Metroid, but reading that guide over and over again, I was infatuated with the Metroid series. Samus Aran was a hero that definitely caught my eye as well. 
early on in that guide, they had a page dedicated to Samus and it showed vital statistics and some background on the power suit that Samus wore. But what really caught my attention was the artwork that showed sort of a cutaway down the middle of the power suit. Samus with the power suit was on the left, but then Samus in her human form was on the right. Ten-year-old Nomad was fixated on that photo and it hit me all at once. Samus Aran was a woman. Now, that really isn't anything groundbreaking nowadays, but back when I was a kid, pretty much all the heroes and action stars I knew were all men. I didn't know women were able to be heroes in this capacity. It was pretty awesome to me, and it was a big part of what drew me to want to learn more about the Metroid series. Even though I was a young boy, it really didn't have anything to do with physical attraction or anything like that. It was just a brand new idea to me, and it excited me. Samus looked absolutely badass in that drawing. According to the guide, she was 6 foot 3 inches tall, 198 pounds of strong, muscular woman, and she definitely looked like someone that could hold her own in a fight and knock some skulls around whenever the situation called for it. I wanted to learn more about her and figure out her origins more than what the guide told me. Real quick, let me take a step back while trying not to fall down a huge rabbit hole here. Female action stars were not a new thing back in the early 90s when Super Metroid was released, I know that. Sarah Connor from the Terminator movies and Ripley from the Aliens movies are the first two that come to my mind now, and those were movies that had been out a decade around this point. I knew of these movies, but up to that point in my life, I was never permitted to watch them, and I didn't know the extent of Sarah or Ripley's exploits. Had I known then what I know now, I would have lumped them right in with Samus Aran. In my eyes, what makes them even more special are the fact that they aren't just automatically good at everything. There's a build-up which defines all of their characters. And when they do reach their super badass status, they are still very human at their core. Ripley's maternal drive is what propelled her forward to find and protect Newt in the second Alien film. Sarah Connor carried with her the burden of knowing mankind's fate if Judgment Day came to pass, but that did not stop her from trying to do right by her then-estranged son John and protecting him, not just to save the world, but because John was her son first and foremost. Samus wasn't depicted as a mother, really, but she was compassionate towards innocent life. In that guide, Samus was written out to be a hardened bounty hunter, but she cares about those who need protecting and would go so far as to forgo her bounty to protect those that need it. All of that to say, Samus caught my attention as a character I wanted to play as and learn more about. Alas, that never came to be. I didn't get it for my birthday the year that I asked for it, and the Sony PlayStation was right around the corner in September of 1995. My stepdad jumped on that one pretty quick, and our Nintendo-centric household quickly evolved into a Sony household. In 1996, other female heroes emerged, most notably for me being Jill Valentine from the original Resident Evil games, and Lara Croft from the Tomb Raider series. Samus Aran slowly faded away from my memory. She'd pop up now and again, though. Back when I had a working GameCube, I played the crap out of Super Smash Bros. Melee. Samus was on the roster, and I enjoyed messing around with her a bit, but it never rekindled that boyhood wonderment. Fast forward to last week when I was flipping through my library of games. I was looking for something short to knock off the backlog, and Metroid on the NES kept pulling my gaze. I hopped on the How Long to Beat website. 
At around 7 hours to beat, I was about to pull the trigger. Then I noticed Metroid Zero Mission came in at about the 4.5 hour mark. Perfect! It felt like it was time to dive into the Metroid series at this point, so I booted up the old Game Boy Advance and settled in. So, what is this game? Metroid Zero Mission is a 2D side-scrolling action game where you control Samus Aran, a bounty hunter hired by the Galactic Federation to eliminate all the Metroid lifeforms on the planet Zebs, where space pirates are currently working to breed them in order to use them as biological weapons to be used against anything and anyone that stands against them. You are also tasked with finding and eliminating the Mother Brain, a mechanical lifeform that's powering the defenses on the planet. Unlike earlier games of the time, there are no levels or stages in this game. You don't just go from one side of the screen to the other, fight a boss and move on. You're free to explore the planet in whatever order you please as you search for the Metroids and Mother Brain. But like I mentioned in the intro, you'll come across obstacles in your path and it's not always enough to find ways around them. You'll have to locate and use the right weapons and the right equipment to pass these obstacles, which open up more of the planet for you to explore. Oh, and in case I forgot to mention it when I record the intro to the show, Zero Mission is a remake of the OG Metroid on the original Nintendo. Same story, but with updated graphics, additional gameplay features, updated soundtrack, and some extra areas to explore. Zero Mission, and by extension the original Metroid, is another example of a game that takes all of its core elements and marries them together in almost perfect harmony. While the amount of presented story is lacking, what's here is solid, and when you put that up against the exploration, combat, overall gameplay, and the sense of progression this game gives you, you really can't go wrong here. So first up, let's focus a bit on the gameplay and expand outwards. What the Metroid series is probably most known for, at least in my opinion at this point in my Metroid journey, is the equipment-gated progression. The idea being, you need to locate weapons or power yourself up in order to progress into new areas. When you start and take control of Samus, you really don't have much of anything. You come equipped with your power suit, and the weapon you have is a cannon where your right arm should be. You can jump decently high, and your blaster fires projectiles that don't really seem to fly all that far, but that's okay. You can still maneuver pretty well and defend yourself alright. You have a map in the upper right-hand corner of your screen, and a larger one that you can look at in the pause menu. It's empty, but as you explore, it starts to fill out and give you a sense of where you've been. You're going to be doing a lot of backtracking, so the map is going to be a welcome friend. Fun random fact, The original Metroid didn't have a map feature of any sort from what I've read, which may explain why it takes more time to beat the Zero Mission. Anyway, top left of the screen, you have the number 99. This is your energy, or your life meter. As you take damage, the number decreases. Once it reaches zero, it's game over. And at least for the time being, that's it. You aren't given any direction on where you need to go or what your objective is. Pick a direction and hop to it, which is something I really liked and appreciated. In the very beginning, once I got my bearings, I had two distinct feelings sweep over me. First, after testing my jumping abilities and getting a feel for my blaster, I actually didn't feel like a badass bounty hunter. I felt like a rookie, someone who was untested. And that sounds like a bad thing now, but trust me, it is not. And second, I felt a weird sense of loneliness and isolation. 
Reason being, it was just me, and I was all alone on this alien planet. I have no idea what to expect. The enemies make their home here, and I'm just a visitor. And it's not just the enemy aliens or creatures that are a threat. Even the terrain is foreign and just as dangerous. The ground can crumble underneath your feet if you aren't careful. Areas of the planet are thick with intense heat that can sap your energy, and other areas have corrosive acid you have to either trudge through or find ways to avoid. The game doesn't stop and tell you what these dangers are and how to avoid them, though. You're not going to get a prompt like you would today that says, Warning, entering areas of high heat will cause damage. Or messages like, Caution, your ability to jump will be severely impaired while submerged in liquid. You're just going to have to come to these realizations on your own. It's sort of like when I told my dog Dee Dee that he probably shouldn't sniff and provoke our pet hedgehog. I mean, he's a dog, he's not gonna listen to me. He'll just need to figure it out on his own, though. And boy, did he figure out that was a bad idea. Oh boy. Joking aside, though, that's a huge part of what makes this game such a good one. It does isolate you, but not in a way you feel hopeless or unable to overcome challenges. On the contrary, you may have your limits, but the game always gives you a path to move forward. You just have to find it. Now, what you'll always come across as you explore are areas you can't access. Sometimes it'll be a ledge or something just out of reach. Other times you'll come across something that's in your face, such as a door you can't open. You'll need to find the right gear in order to get past these obstacles. Here's a couple of examples. Doors, for instance, are mostly blue in color. All you need to do is shoot it or hit it with any type of weapon, and they'll open. Easy. Then you'll come across a red door, and then you'll go to blast that with your cannon, and... nothing. Well, that's shitty. Now what do we do? You'll have to upgrade your suit to be able to shoot missiles, which are the only thing that'll open the red doors. Your map will make note of the red door, and you're forced to turn back. Here's another example. You'll come across a room where there's an open space that's only about half your size. You can kneel, but you aren't able to crawl through this open space. On the other side, you can clearly see an item that you can collect. So there must be a way back there, but there doesn't seem to be a clear indicator as to how you get back there. Well, that's also pretty shitty. So you're forced to turn back. What the game is doing is subtly tunneling you towards the areas of the map that you are able to traverse with your current loadout or weapons and equipment. It's up to you to keep exploring, keep killing enemies in your way, until you find out what it is that's preventing you from moving into those other areas. Eventually, you'll find a missile pod and you'll have the ability to fire missiles at the enemy. Right away, your mind is probably going to go back to that red door that you found. Now, you can open it. But it's more than just being able to open a door. Your offensive abilities have increased and you feel just a little bit better equipped to face the dangers of the planet. You start using missiles in combat and just like your cannon, missiles can become a natural extension of your combat abilities. Whether you've realized it or not, you have just leveled up. Let's say you go through that red door and explore some. You take in the new area and you keep progressing. Then you see it. Another item you can obtain. You find a way to it, and you're given the Morph Ball upgrade. This allows Samus to roll up into a little ball and roll around. Ah, and then it hits you! That little waist-high passage you weren't able to crawl through can now be traversed since you can roll yourself up into a little ball. You head back to the passageway and activate your Morph Ball, and just roll right through it to get the item that you saw on the other side. Another tool in the toolkit, and you just leveled up again. 
The main premise of Metroid follows this formula. As you upgrade Samus and her abilities expand, you're able to move her into other areas of the game world, and soon, the map becomes more filled out and Zeb's isn't all that foreign to you anymore. This sense of progression is by far my favorite part of this game, and really, I can relate it to so many other aspects of real life. We all want to be on top, right? We all want to be the best player on the team, we all want to be the best speaker in the room, the best at whatever it is. We also might want the best things in life. The best house. The best car. The best cell phone. The best gaming PC. But unless we are gifted or get incredibly lucky, we don't start as the best at what we do and we don't start with the best tangible things. We have to work our way there over time. Getting off on a tangent, I'd like to think that I, in my personal life, am a pretty decent public speaker. I've led meetings for work and have made presentations to the company higher-ups, you know, things like that. Now, this is not to say that I'm an expert speaker, but my skills have grown considerably since I was younger. I still have a long way to go, though. And as far as the tangibles go, let me use my current home office setup as an example. I started with a Dell laptop that I've had since 2009 when I was going back to college. The desk I have was the desk that my parents had in their home when I was growing up. Eventually, I was able to get a double monitor set up by purchasing some used monitors online. Image quality is kind of so-so, and only one of them has a speaker, though. (laughs) Still, now I have more screen real estate. I upgraded my laptop for a newer, yet still refurbished Dell laptop that I'm using right now. My mouse and keyboard are your low-budget brands, and recently I got a used webcam from a seller online for pretty cheap, too. Slowly, I've been accumulating some decent office equipment, but I still have a ways to go. This has nothing to do with finances or anything. The example I'm trying to reiterate to the game are the progression aspects. You're not going to be the best right out of the gate, and you're not going to have all the best gadgets. It takes time. You progress slowly. When I look at how far I've come as a speaker, or look at how much my home office has grown from when I started, I feel a sense of pride, truly. Bringing it all full circle, this is the feeling you get when you progress in Metroid. You feel more and more powerful, you have a little more pride in your abilities, and you're able to take on slightly tougher challenges as you keep progressing. Yeah, I like that comparison. See, sometimes our stories here in the Wildlands have real-world value. To all the naysayers who claim video games can't teach us anything of value in our lives, I say shove that notion right up your ass. Ahem. Anyway, where were we? Ah, a couple more things I wanted to touch on in regards to progression and exploration. Like I mentioned before, the game doesn't really hold your hand very much. You have your map to rely on to figure out where you've been and where you need to go next, but that's only part of it. There are secret passageways riddled along the ground and along the walls that you'll have to discover to locate places off the map. Now this is an absolute cool feature, but it was frustrating for me in just one instance of the game, which I'll touch on a little later. As you progress, you come across these statues that typically hold the more prominent items. These statues are of bird-like creatures called the Chozo, or Chozu? We're gonna go with Chozo, I think. When you pick up a main item from them, your map will be marked with a glowing circle. I took that to mean the statues were pointing out the way or areas of interest to head towards. Sometimes those circles would appear in areas that I hadn't explored yet. So for the most part, I knew what direction to head in if I was stuck. 
However, there was a point where I had absolutely no idea where to go next. Every room seemed like a dead end, and I couldn't find the next item I thought I needed to progress. There was a long couple of rooms that were filled with intense heat, and I didn't have enough maximum health to make it to the other side without dying. So I assumed I needed an upgrade to either expand my total health pool or resist the heat altogether. But I didn't know where to go at this point. I probably spent 30-ish minutes trying to figure out what it was that I missed. It was the one and only time I resorted to looking online at a walkthrough. And of course, it was a secret passage in a room I had been in that I missed since I didn't bother blasting the ceiling to reveal it. Once I found it, I came across a power suit upgrade that let Samus withstand the heated areas, and then I was golden. From there, I never needed a walkthrough, which I think is a huge testament to the game's overall level design and progression structure now that I'm thinking about it. I let myself get frustrated in that 30-minute block of time, and that was on me. The game wasn't that hard to figure out, I just wasn't thinking and using all the tools I had. So really, you'll rarely find yourself stuck. Another nice feature is that if there's an item you can obtain in an area you're in, there'll be a little circle that's placed on your map. If I was in that room and didn't see anything, that was my cue to blast the floor, blast the walls, or blast the ceiling to see if I could reveal something that I could get, or if I would need to come back after getting a new piece of equipment I might have needed. It was a pretty awesome quality of life feature. Oh, and while I'm thinking about progress... The game is designed in such a way that you really only should progress in a specific order. Example, obtain the missile power-up, then obtain the morph ball, then get this item, blah blah blah. Even though you're free to explore, things mostly happen in a sequence. However, you can break that sequence if you try hard enough to get to areas that you shouldn't have access to. A great example is when you get the ability to drop bombs when you're in your little morph ball form. If you drop a bomb and Samus is right on top of it, the force of the bomb will propel her upwards, which is pretty cool, right? If you're in the air and you're able to lay bombs at just the right time, you can use this technique to keep climbing up in the air to reach locations you probably shouldn't have access to at this point in the game. This technique didn't break the game or anything, but I found it interesting that you could experiment with your abilities and seek out areas you probably shouldn't be able to get to ahead of time. The game encourages experimentation, and this is a great example of it. Metroid really is about the tools that you have at your disposal, so I appreciated the fact that I wasn't limited just because I didn't have something I should have. If you can use the game's mechanics in such a way to progress outside the ideal sequence, more power to you. I'm sure it creates some interesting speedruns of the game, too. Okay, so that's the general gameplay loop. Explore, find the thing that makes us more powerful, use that to explore deeper, find the next thing, etc. Let's touch on the combat experience a bit. So it goes without saying, you become more powerful as you progress and find new items and abilities to use. However, combat at its core is fairly simple. In almost every area of the game, you'll encounter creatures that inhabit the areas that you're in, and they are less than welcoming. Some creatures will come straight at you, looking to pick a fight. Other creatures may just walk all along the areas of the walls or the floor, and you need to avoid stepping on them. Your main method of attack is going to be the blaster cannon on your arm. It's one of the many items you'll be able to upgrade as you go, but it starts off as a generic weapon with very little reach. Soon you'll be able to upgrade it to shoot long distances, you'll be able to charge it up for a massive damage-dealing shot, 
give it an ice beam upgrade that'll freeze enemies in place, and finally, you'll get a wave upgrade that allows you to fire at enemies through solid objects. Most of the enemies you'll face can be taken down with this weapon alone with very little effort. I relied mainly on my beam blaster cannon thingamabob for most of the game while I was exploring Zebs. The usage of your cannon has some pretty decent versatility too. You normally fire it right out in front of where Samus is facing, but you can also shoot it straight up, at an angle, or even straight down if you're in the middle of a jump. Later in the game, you'll be able to unlock the ability to hang onto ledges, and while you're hanging, you can angle your cannon in a couple different ways and take out enemies while you're holding onto a ledge. It's pretty cool stuff. Eventually, when I was able to get my hands on missiles, I felt the need to hoard them for tougher enemies, though. I think it was still my survival horror training from all those years ago, but missiles were a finite resource, and you could run out of them. Granted, most enemies dropped them pretty regularly, I still felt compelled to save them up anyway. They were pretty strong, and some of the bigger enemies would definitely get a missile or two in the faceplate whenever I saw them. But what I usually save them for was the big baddies you come across. You're going to come across bigger creatures that you could classify as boss monsters that will need to be taken out with missiles. Bigger boss monsters require some precision, too. The first boss monster you're probably going to come across is the Durimo? Durimo? Or however you pronounce that mess. Online, I've seen this creature called the Charge Beam Beast, since it's the keeper of that specific item. It's a giant worm-like creature that has a huge eyeball. If video games have taught us any life lessons, it's that eyeballs are typically weak spots on monsters. You have to shoot a few missiles at that spot in order to win the day, but you'll have to be patient. The eyeball doesn't stay exposed for long, and you can waste a ton of missiles if your timing isn't right. Speaking of boss monsters, allow me to touch on a couple that really stood out to me and are series staples from what I've read. Early in the game, you can potentially come across these two statues that need to be moved in order to progress. These are the heads of two of the big bads in the game. First up is Crad. Crade? I'm gonna go with Crade. Crade was a huge reptilian creature that's so tall he takes up multiple screens. To defeat him, you have to shoot missiles into his open mouth. Everywhere else takes no damage. While you're trying to do this, Kraid is swinging his claws at you and tossing projectiles in your direction. Now you yourself are standing on a small platform, which you need to keep your balance on since you need to be up high to launch missiles into Kraid's mouth. The platform will get more and more destroyed as your foe takes more damage, and if you fall, you'll need to climb all the way back up. Kraid has these belly spikes that he shoots out from his stomach, and if you can dodge them, they'll stick into the back wall and you can use them as platforms to step on to get back on top of the screen. You gotta be careful though, because if they hit you, they will do massive damage to you. Things get more and more hectic as the fight concludes, but it was a fun fight, I thought. Kraid was a pretty awesome baddie to fight, and you feel pretty good when you do finally put him down. If I have any gripes about this encounter though, it would be with the controls. I consider myself an above-average gamer at best, but the combination of buttons to hit and the timing needed to damage Kraid was a hard thing to master for me at first. To fire a missile, you have to hold down a shoulder button on your controller to activate the missile launcher out of your cannon. Then you had to jump, and when you were lined up with the creature's mouth, you had to hit the attack button to launch the missile at just the right time while you're still holding your shoulder button to keep your missile launcher open. 
Now, I know it doesn't sound that hard, but in practice, while you're trying to fire as many missiles as possible, and you have things flying at you that could potentially damage you, and you're trying to dodge those, it just absolutely fried my pea-sized brain. I don't know what it was, but that combination of actions was very difficult for me. Is it poor game design? No, I don't think so. But I think I would have liked a toggle instead of having to hold down a button in order to shoot missiles with another button on the controller. Don't mind me, I'm just an old man complaining for no reason. You damn kids and your finger dexterity. And if someone reaches out to me and tells me that there's a way to toggle and not actually hold down the shoulder button, that would make my day. So the other big bad is Ridley. I didn't research this, but his appearance looks a lot like one of the xenomorph creatures in the old Alien movies, and I'm wondering if that was done that way on purpose. Ridley Scott was the director of the very first Alien movie, which I assume was a callback to the movie as well. I'll need to look into that. Anyway, Ridley is a flying creature, and he makes for a pretty intense boss battle. I will say, I had absolutely no issues dispatching him, though. He can fly around the screen and try to whip you with his tail and even pick you up and cause damage that way, but really, all I did was spam my missiles at him and he went down pretty quick for me. Ridley also launches fireballs a couple different ways, but all of those fireballs can be shot down with your blaster, so they're not much of a threat, really. Even though Ridley's movements are somewhat erratic, all I had to do was shoot down his fireballs, avoid his tail and grab attacks, and pump him full of missiles. It was an alright encounter, but personally, I was hoping for a little bit more. Still, I absolutely love Ridley's design, he looks absolutely menacing, and from what I remember, he's a pretty predominant staple in the Metroid series going forward, so I'm very interested to see what he's all about. Another point I wanted to touch on that I thought was a really cool addition to this game was an area that you have to work through where you've lost your power suit. The story isn't all that robust in this game, really, but I don't want to spoil the specifics of when this happens to you. For those of you listening that are more than just passive Metroid fans, you've probably seen other iterations of Samus without her power suit on. Under the big power suit that she wears, she'll typically wear a tight blue outfit called a Zero Suit. While wearing only the Zero Suit, Samus is much more agile and can jump pretty high and even hang on ledges. The drawback here is that she won't have any of the firepower that comes with the power suit, and she'll take much more damage when she's attacked by the enemy. I'm not sure if this is correct, but I read online that this is the first game the Zero Suit makes an actual appearance, and it's been a staple in Samus' character ever since. What makes it worth bringing up here is there's a section of the game where you'll lose your power suit for a little bit, and you'll just be playing as Samus running around in her Zero Suit. Space pirates have made their way into the area, and they're on the lookout for you. The only weapon you'll have is a gun that's called the Paralyzer, and it does exactly what it implies. It paralyzes enemies when the blaster is at full charge and when you hit them with it. And that's all it does. It is not a lethal weapon at all. So if it's not very evident, you're really on the defensive in this section of the game. The object of the section that you're in is to escape the pursuing pirates and find a way to get your suit back. Basically, this area of the game is kind of a stealth section. There's shadowy parts of the environment that you can hide in to avoid detection, but if you're spotted, the pirates will pursue you until you either evade them or you're killed. I actually really like this section. Stealth segments in games can go either way nowadays, but I appreciated that this section made me think outside the box in order to progress forward. 
It didn't feel like it was a section that was forced upon me just as a gimmick or anything like that. Plus, at this point in the game, you're already pretty powerful with a decent amount of items and weapons. I liked being put in a situation where all that was taken away from you, but I still had all the skills that I'd learned up to that point to use as a way to get through. It really speaks to your ability as a player to adapt, and it also speaks to Samus and her character. That's why she's the best bounty hunter in the galaxy. The other nice thing about this section, though, and why I think I like it so much, is it doesn't last very long. When you do find your power suit, it is awesome to be able to come out of the shadows and kick some serious space pirate ass. You watch Samus put her suit on in true Sailor Moon fashion, and you can't help but get a little pumped up. No more sneaking around in the shadows and crawling through air shafts. You get to use all the tools that you've earned up to this point for some serious payback. And the game encourages this too. The music, which was very dark and foreboding, is now upbeat and you just feel very compelled to flex your muscles a little bit. It genuinely put a smile on my face. When a game makes you smile, you know it's done something right. One of the last things I think I want to touch on real quick with Metroid Zero Mission is the overall presentation. Obviously the graphics are much better than the original Nintendo counterpart, but that's not the best part of the presentation, really. Overall, the presentation here was very console quality. From how smooth the gameplay itself was to the comic book style cutscenes that explain the story, there were times I completely forgot I was playing a Game Boy game. This game really belongs on my living room TV. A decent amount of the visuals were lifted from Super Metroid on the Super Nintendo and they translate beautifully. Zero Mission's soundtrack remixed the game's original score exceptionally well as well, keeping true to the original while giving Zero Mission its own identity. It really is the definitive way to start your journey into the Metroid universe, and after I completed my playthrough, I'm very eager to dive into the other games in the series as well. One more thing before we wrap it up, and I've saved my favorite feature of this game for last. As you complete the game, you unlock gallery images of Samus as a reward for completing the game meeting certain conditions. Photos like her in her power suit, or shots of her in her zero suit walking down a vast cityscape. The artwork looks amazing for the handheld, but it's not just the unlockable artwork that's the best thing about this game. It's how you go about completing your gallery if you decide to take on the task. There are three things that decide what gallery image you unlock and add to your collection. First is the game's difficulty level. Second is how quickly you finish the game. And then third is how many of the game's total items that you collect in a single run-through. A combination of all three will dictate your ending and gallery item. Sounds simple, but here's where it gets good in my opinion. One ending, which is the ending that I got, has you finishing the game and taking longer than four hours to do it and not finding all the items. Basic fare. Another ending has you complete the game between two to four hours without finding all of the items. Still pretty basic fare. Then there's one where you have to play the game on the hardest difficulty, find all the items, and complete the game in under two hours. There are a total of eight gallery items, so eight different ways you have to play the game. My absolute favorite is the gallery item that you get by playing the game on the hardest difficulty while only picking up 15% of the available items. Now that sounds like an absolute challenge. I like games that not only give you incentive to go back and replay them, but give you a reason to change up what you know and challenge you to adopt a new playstyle. I'm not a game completionist by any stretch anymore now that I'm getting older, 
But if I see an item, I want to stop what I'm doing and find a way to get it. On a 15% or less item run-through, it would challenge everything I knew about my own behavior. It sounds really fun, and I appreciate Zero Mission for giving the player a reason to do something different. I will say, getting artwork of Samus in various situations does sound cool for what it is, but I would have liked something a little bit more substantial. But again, that's old man me just griping about nothing. All in all, I highly recommend Metroid Zero Mission if you have the means to play it. I was drawn into it almost immediately, and it engrossed me for quite a while. When I finally finished the game, I was on my front porch, and apparently my wife was trying to get my attention from the doorway into the house. I had absolutely no idea. I was locked into the experience. I really loved the feeling of progression the game gave me, and I really felt like by the end, I had grown into the badass bounty hunter Samus herself was. Even though I started the game feeling isolated and alone, I kept getting a little stronger, a little bit better equipped, and most of all, more confident as I played. The unknown became known, and things that caused me to worry or run away now would crumble before me. I was eager to explore Zeb's and find all of its secrets, and every time I did find one, I felt a sense of genuine reward for thinking outside the box and trying new things. What I think I walked away with most, though, was an appreciation for Samus as a character. The story that unfolds here definitely left me with more questions than answers about our heroine, but I'm eager to learn more about her as I play through the rest of the Metroid games in the future. I really appreciate a character that seems genuine and relatable. While we all love those characters that are just amazing at all the things that they do and don't have to face any adversity, I much more appreciate characters that potentially have an interesting backstory or come from humble beginnings. I'm getting the sense that this is the case for Samus, and I'm hoping that I'm right. We'll just have to see what happens in our next mission with Samus Aran, the Galactic Federation's go-to bounty hunter. With that, we have another one in the books. This concludes episode 8 of the Retro Wildlands, and I want to thank you again for taking the time to chill next to the fire with me and listen to me talk about one of my favorite things ever, video games. I really enjoy nerding out with all of you, and if nothing else, I hope you find some small enjoyment in this project. If you like the show and want to show it and myself some support, please consider giving us a good review on your podcast service of choice. I'd like to think that'll make us grow. I have no real idea what good reviews do, but if you have a minute and then want to throw one down, I'd really appreciate it. Also, please consider throwing us a follow on social media. You can find the Retro Wildlands on Facebook by searching out the name of the show, and we're also on Twitter and Instagram at Retro Wildlands. If you follow the show, I'll follow you back, and we can become internet best friends, and I'll comment on your pictures of your wine or beer after a hard day's work. I will say, pictures of beer and even wine are my absolute favorites. Plus, social media is the easiest place to get a hold of me if you want to chat or just interact with the show. I think I'm getting slightly better at using hashtags and stuff. Plus, 
I'm really good about dropping a random dog picture in there, so nothing but wins all around. Beyond that, please consider spreading the word about the Retro Wildlands to your friends if you do like the show. You can even spread the word to the ticket booth operators on the turnpike or highway toll roads near you. I have to imagine those folks have to have a need for some decent entertainment while collecting money from random commuters all day. So what better entertainment than me flapping my gums about video games? Okay, so what's coming up next week? After listing off all the PlayStation games that are near and dear to my heart in the intro, I'm feeling that pull again. Recently, I threw down a couple of bucks to get a hold of Twisted Metal, so I'm going to be playing through that game again and seeing if I can make an episode out of it. But before that, though, I'm definitely getting that itch again. You know, that itch you get after you've been infected by the T-virus? That's right, friends. Next week, we're going to take a visit to that Midwestern town that was the epicenter of one of the biggest viral outbreaks ever to hit the United States, Raccoon City. We'll join up with rookie police officer Leon S. Kennedy and college student Claire Redfield, who will forever have their lives changed the moment they step foot into the doomed city. Until then, my friends, my name is Nomad, and you can find me roaming the retro wildlands. 